Good morning. It's great to see you today. Uh, we've had a wonderful week, a uh, time of togetherness, and uh, <clears throat> I'm about out of voice, so if I have to stop for a moment and cough or hack, I'll try to remember to do something like this. So I apologize for that if I cough into the microphone. <clears throat> we've just wore our voices out this week, uh, mine the last two weeks really, but uh, I'm glad to be here. I hope you're glad to be here, and I hope you're ready to study God's Word this morning. <clears throat> if you haven't been with us, we've been going through a series on Acts chapter 2 here lately, talking about things that the early church did, especially after the day of Pentecost. What was it that the first century church practiced? They were in the presence of the apostles who were being guided by the Holy Spirit. And we can look at what they did and we can learn from that and we can know what we need to do as we name Jesus our Lord and our Savior and we seek to follow him and to please him. So uh, this morning I drew singing, so of all things, as we've been going through singing instruction and talking about songs all week. We've been talking about singing, uh, and so our lesson is going to be about singing, but it may not be what you might think it be. I want to talk this morning about the purpose of singing, the reason that we need to sing, and also why God is worthy of our praises. And so I've entitled our lesson, Raise a Hallelujah. And we've been singing. Uh, we learned a song this week. And I know it's been stuck in some of your heads. Um, but we've been singing this song all week long, I Raise a Hallelujah. What does that even mean? And you know what's interesting is if you look through the Bible, it, you'll, you'll be hard-pressed to actually find this sort of English rendition of this word in Scripture, the word hallelujah. So why do we use that word? Well, the word hallelujah without the H and also uh, without the J is used in the book of Revelation. Sometimes uh, we see this word in different translations. But what does hallelujah mean? And what does it mean to raise a hallelujah? Well, think of it this way. We are lifting up praises to the Lord. And that's actually what the word hallelujah, it comes from two Hebrew words, halal and jaw, which means praises to jaw or God which is the root of that word Jehovah that we know, which is translated Lord. So when we think about raising a hallelujah, what we mean is lift up praises to our God. And you know what? We live in a place where oftentimes that's very uncomfortable for us to say, praise the Lord. I remember the first time, some of y'all know Jordan Dancer. Jordan is a very young evangelist. Uh, Jordan, one of the first times I ever heard him preach, I went to him and I said to him, I said, you did a really good job. And you know what he said to me? Praise God. And I thought, well, that was weird. That's a strange thing to say. Does that sound strange to you? That someone would say, praise God when you give him a compliment? Why is that strange? You know what we're used to saying? Well, thank you. Thank you for that. But here's the deal. Praise God. We don't need to be uncomfortable saying praise God, praise the Lord. God is deserving of, of glory and honor. And our life should be a life of praising God. And I think we should make it more common for us to use the words praise God or praise the Lord. Because if you look at the Psalms, which are songs is what they are. They're not just poems. They're not just scriptures. They are songs that were written often by musicians. And what do most of those, or a lot of those, not most of them, but a lot of those Psalms start out with. Praise the Lord. You know what that is? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's how they start these psalms out with praise the Lord. And then there's a description of these things, some of the things that we're going to look at this morning, Lord willing. 
So in Acts chapter 2, let's go back there for a moment before we, we dive in. In Acts chapter 2, what we see is after these thousands of Jews were converted to Christ and, and now they were following the apostles' doctrine, they were, they were practicing and assembling, assembling together, it says they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Now listen, praising God. And having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So we've talked so far about the fact they got together, they assembled, they would pray together. And Brother Nathan's going to talk about prayer next week, Lord willing. And, and we see the different things they did, but do we ever think about just them praising God? And how that garnered the favor of all the people? They were praising God. Where were they praising God? Were they in houses praising God? Where were they praising? I, I bet they were. I bet they were praising God in their house. But you know, if we go back to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and Luke is the writer of Acts, Luke actually starts the book of Acts with these thoughts, but he ended the book of Luke with these. This is after Jesus ascended into heaven. It says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. You know what that means? They were in a very public place praising God. Now we would think that'd be a little strange, wouldn't we? If, some, if we're walking around a store and all of a sudden we saw somebody and they say, praise God, we go, stay away from that person, right? Why is it that we've made a habit of not praising God? Why is that? Is it because we're trying to be like the world? We want the world not to think we're strange or we're religious zealots or maybe we're a religious nut or something like that. Why is it that we can't praise God comfortably? And I hope after this morning that you'll feel more comfortable praising God because God is worthy of our praise. First Peter chapter 2 says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter is writing to the saints. He's writing to Christians and he says, this is who you are. This is who you are. No, you're not identified with something out in the world or, or your job or your career. This is who you are. You're a people that are chosen by God. You're a people who are holy, that have been sanctified and justified by God himself. You're a nation of people. You're a purchased people, purchased by the blood of Jesus. You're a priesthood of kings, royalty. And he said, and here's your purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of the God of heaven and of his son, Jesus Christ. That's your purpose, saints. That's why God cleansed you. That's why he set you apart, so that you'd praise his name. And I, I've been saying this all week, and I want to repeat it, that in Genesis chapter 2, God breathed into man the breath of life. He became a living soul. God gave him the essence of life. And God asked that the very breath that he gave be returned to him in glory and praise. And that's our purpose. To praise God and to show people God is above all. God is holy. And we proclaim that not only in our life but with our words. And so we fulfill our purpose by praising God. James chapter 5.13 says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. You know, it's real easy for me anyway. I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for you. But I know it's real easy for me. To praise God when times are really good. Isn't that easy? To praise God when times are good. 
And we read this and we go, well, see, God said if you're sad, pray. If you're happy, sing. So I don't really have to sing if I'm not happy. But you know what's interesting? I don't think that really was James's point. And we see examples of this throughout the Old and the New Testament of people who were actually in hard times and turned their heart to praise in the hard times. Let's take Paul and Silas, for instance, over here in Acts chapter 16, where it says, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, and what that means, inflicted many blows on them, is they beat them with whips. They beat them with whips. I don't know if you've ever been hit with a whip. Jason hit me with a whip one day. It hurt pretty bad. I hit him back, by the way. <clears throat> it hurt. But I'll tell you, it probably didn't hurt like these because I think he took it easy on me. They weren't taking it easy on them. They beat their backs with whips. They had straps on their back. If you read a little bit later, you'll notice that the jailer who they converted goes out and he washes their straps. They were bleeding. They're in pain. And then they thrust them into the inner prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe, safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stalks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You want to stand out? You want to be strange? Be inside of a prison that you don't deserve to be in because you've done nothing wrong with your backs bleeding, not certain as to what's going to happen, and praise God. Praise God. That's what these men did. And the question is, how do you do that? How do you praise God in the storm? You know, that's been the, the song we've been singing, I Raise a Hallelujah. That's what the chorus says. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder. You're going to hear my praises roar. Sing in the storm. You know what? Sometimes when the storm hits, we're crying tears of sadness. And I'll tell you what, praise God through your tears because it's healing. Because it takes our attention away from ourself and it puts it on him. And that's what Paul and Silas are doing here. They're unsure about what's going to happen. But I'll tell you what they did know. They knew that despite what was going on, the God of heaven deserved their praises. So praise the Lord. Hallelujah, that's what this means. For it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is beautiful. Praise is beautiful. Do you believe that? That it's good? It's good to sing praises? It's a beautiful thing? It's pleasant to sing praises? You know when it's not beautiful and when it's not pleasant? When our heart's not in it. It's not good then. It's just words. It's not really pleasant. Our heart's got to be in it. Hebrews chapter 10 and 24 says this, And let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together, and that's the idea of our assembling together, as the habit of some people, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know why God called us together? Why he called us together? I don't know if you've ever grilled with charcoal, but if you've ever grilled with charcoal, you'll know something. And that is when you're trying to light that charcoal, what do you do with it? You put it all together, right? You put it all together. And then you light those coals on fire. And they'll get hot. And they'll start drawing heat from one another. And they'll get red hot. And then you spread them out. What happens when you spread them out? They start cooling down. And what if you took a tong and you just grabbed one of those briquettes of charcoal and you set it out of the fire? What happens to it? The rest of them stay hot. That one will burn out. You say, why are we talking about charcoal? Because that's how we are. We need one another. We need to be together. We need to generate heat and strength from one another. And when we come together, we encourage one another. And we stir each other up and we say, you got to keep going. you got to keep doing this. And I'll tell you, one of the things that we do when we sing together is we draw our hearts together. We unite 
our hearts by collectively lifting up our praises to God. And he says, you know, sometimes people abandon the meeting together. They abandon the assembly. They don't come and they're not part. He said, don't do that. Don't be a part of that because we need you. We need you. I need you. And you need me because we need each other because it's cold out there. Ephesians 5 says this, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to our God and our Father. We teach one another through song. If we're paying attention, we'll learn. You know, I'm very appreciative of the songwriters. You know, we've got about 1,000 songs in this book. I've written a couple songs, and I'll tell you, it made me have a greater appreciation for these people because writing songs is hard. But you know, they didn't just write some random words. Somebody sat down, and they thought about God, and they thought about who he was, and they thought about Scripture and what Scripture says about God, and they put it in a poetic and musical way so that it would enrich our lives. And I hope we don't take that for granted because I know sometimes I do. To sit there and just let the words sink into our heart. To really think about what it is saying about God. You know, when you read through the Psalms, that's exactly what the Psalms are. They're a shining forth of the glory and majesty of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Beautiful description of the character of God. And we learn through our singing as we sing to one another. We're not just singing up, we're singing out. We're singing praises, but those praises, they build us up and they edify and they teach us. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. You notice he brings psalm into this, which is singing. When we sing, he says, what is that for? It's to build us up. It's to strengthen us. It's to edify us, to make us strong and stable to build a solid rock and a foundation. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing, listen, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, I know that the King James translates this grace in your heart, but, but if you go look up that word sometime, look at the implicative state of that. In other words, it's implying gratitude or thankfulness. It shouldn't just be words we're offering up, but words of gratitude. You know, when I have gratitude in my heart and I'm offering up words of gratitude, it changes how I express things. Doesn't it change how you express things? You ever told somebody thank you for something you really didn't want? You ever done that? You ever opened up a present and you thought it was something else, but you opened it up and it was socks? Now, I'm 43 years old and every time I get socks for Christmas, I'm kind of excited about it. I like good fresh socks. I remember being a kid, I'd get underwear, socks, be like... Next gift, right? And then I go, oh, thanks, right? Thanks. How do you think that affects us praising God when we're not really grateful? We really don't have a heart of thanks. We're not really appreciative of the blessings that he's given us. See, the blessings need to be a part of our praise. And you say, well, I don't know that I have very many blessings. Hebrews chapter 13, 15 says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. You know, sometimes people have said, well, I'm not a very good singer, and so I sing from my heart, but I don't sing with my mouth. God wants your lips. He wants your lips. You know what God never said? He never said, get the rhythm right. He didn't say that. Why do we work on rhythm? Why do we do that this week? Because we're singing together. God never said, sing with perfect pitch. 
You think God really is concerned more about that? I'll tell you what, if we sang with perfect pitch and in perfect rhythm and we got all the parts right but our heart wasn't in it, that is fruitless, pointless. It's just vanity. God wants our heart. Continually, he wants us to offer that fruit toward him, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So we're not going to take time to read this. We don't have time to read this. But there's a story over in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah at the time. And <coughs> uh, there's many times in Israel's history where nations would come up against Jerusalem and they would try to overthrow the city and take over the city. They wanted that city. But God was protecting them. But Jehoshaphat gets word that the Moabites and the Ammonites and those dwellers from Mount Sair were coming against Jerusalem. And it says Jehoshaphat was afraid. And so in his fear, he called for a fast. He wanted everybody there to fast. And then he offers up this prayer toward God. And he begins to highlight the greatness and goodness of God through that prayer. And then eventually he says, and God, don't forget us. Protect us. And then after this happens, right as this, these three nations are coming against Jerusalem, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, or Mataniah, however you want to say that, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So you got all those names, don't necessarily worry about that. Worry about this right here, the Spirit of the Lord comes on this prophet. And he says, listen, all you of Judah... And you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. So he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says, Everybody that's afraid, you need to take courage. Don't you be afraid, because this is not your fight to win. This is God's fight, but there's something that they needed to do. He said, Tomorrow go down and against them. They will surely come up to the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. What? How do you win a war? You fight, right? You go out and you fight. And this prophet says, that's not how you're going to win this fight. You're not going to fight. But you need to go. You need to go out there. Position yourselves. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. What did they do? Did they cower in their shelters? You know, that would be confusing to me. You'd have to have a lot of confidence in God to go out to war against a multitude of people knowing that you're not supposed to fight them. But they did what God said. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Sire, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Sire to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an, atone and made an end of the inhabitants of Sire, they helped to destroy one another. I want you to try to imagine this scene that you are the Ammonites, the Moabites, and those of Mount Sire. And you bring this multitude of soldiers and you are armed. And you are coming in to kill all of the people in Judah. 
And all of a sudden you see an army of people, a small army of people heading towards you as you're coming against them. And all they're doing is singing praises to God. You know what I'd be thinking? Well, this is going to be a slaughter. This is going to be real easy. And what did God do? It says he set ambushes against them. Now, most scholars, and I would tend to agree, think that that means that God put angels around the armies of the Ammonites and the Moabites and those of Mount Sire. And what happened to them? They got confused. And so the Moabites and the Ammonites, they start killing all the people from Mount Sire, and they utterly killed and destroyed them. They killed them all. And then what happened after that? Then the Moabites and the Ammonites turned against each other, and they killed each other. And if you go to the next verse, you know what it says? And they walked out the next day, and they were all dead, and not one of them escaped. Not one person in Judah had to lift a finger, but I'll tell you what they had to do. They had to lift up their voice to praise God. And my point is this. Sometimes we think we're going to get out of the mess that we're in through our own power and our strength and our tactics and our strategies. But what we really need to do in the midst of the battle is praise God. Because that's what happened here. And God said, this is my fight. We just sang that song. You know, y'all picked perfect songs this morning. I didn't ask Riley to lead that. The battle belongs to the Lord. And so what do you need to do? Praise God. Put your confidence and your trust in him. And that's what praise does. It says, I'm not great, but you are great. And I'm going to fall down at your feet and show you that you are above me. And God will be on our side. You may have noticed on the back of the t-shirt this week, the God of angel armies is always by my side. Where does that come from? Isn't that kind of strange? The God of angel armies. Do you know what an army of angels can do? Well, here's one example. But sometime go over to 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings 19. There was a king that came in against Jerusalem, and he was going to destroy them. And that night, one angel, one angel, came in and slaughtered 185,000 soldiers. One angel. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? But I'll tell you what, an angel's got nothing on God. He is above an army of those angels. And maybe you think, well, I can't. But listen, he can. He can. These are the things praise do for us. But as we start winding our thoughts down, I want to talk about from Psalms 111 that we went through this morning. I appreciate the reading this morning of why God deserves our praise. So it starts out with this idea of praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And the first thing I want to notice is we praise the Lord because God is mighty and God is excellent. The works of God, they are great and they're studied by all. That is, they are pondered by all who have pleasure in them. When you look around and you see what God's done, can we not say God is great? Should we not say that God is great? When you look up into the heavens and you see the giant expanse that is the universe and the order and the structure behind everything, when your body heals itself, when you see the magnificent creation of God, are you not in awe of that? Psalms 150 verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. You know, sometimes I have praised God according to my emotional state. Been there? I don't feel like it today, Lord. And we praise God according to our circumstance rather than in accordance to his greatness. But I'll tell you something, God is worthy of my praise even if he does nothing for me. You say, I don't know about that. 
Well, you know what? That is exactly what Satan said to God in the book of Job. God said, look at my servant Job. Look at him. He's perfect. That is, he's complete. He's upright. He fears me. There's none like him in all the earth. And Satan essentially says, no, he's a sellout. The only reason why he praises you is because you've made his life cushy. You've made it luxurious. You put this hedge around him to protect him on every side, and you've blessed him. But you take those blessings away, he will curse you to your face. Now I want to ask you a question. When times get hard, what do we do? What do we do? Do we complain against God? Are we mad at God? You know what's amazing about Job? When Satan comes in and afflicts him, and the affliction was great, he killed all ten of Job's children all at once. I can't think of any greater pain that you could possibly experience than not just losing one child, but losing every one of your children in a moment. And oh, by the way, his wife now hates him because she blames him and says, why do you still retain your integrity? Just curse God and die. That's what Satan wanted him to do. You know what Job did? He tore his robe and he shaved his head. You know why he did that? Because he was depressed. He was sad. He was in the midst of deep sorrow and pain. But then he falls to the ground and he worships. And he said, naked came I from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know what he's saying? When I came out of the womb, I had nothing and God was great then and I have nothing now. And God is great now. Not because of what I've got. Not because of my emotional state. God is great despite my circumstance. And God is worthy of my praise because he is mighty and he is excellent. Revelations 4.10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist. And were created. This scene in heaven of these men who have been bestowed glory and honor. And they sit upon thrones. But when they're in the presence of God, you know what they do? They throw those crowns down. They deny themselves of their own honor because the honor of God is greater. The glory of God is greater. And they fall down at his feet and they say, you are worthy. We're not worthy. You are worthy. Do you honestly think that we will stand before the presence of God with our head lifted up and our chests puffed out. You know, arguably, John, the Apostle John, was Jesus' best friend while he walked on this earth. And when John saw the glorified Son of God, John says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. John walked with Jesus, laid on his chest, embraced Jesus, touched Jesus. <clears throat> But when he saw Jesus glorified, he fell down like a dead man. I want you to know something. You're in the presence of God today. And sometimes we don't feel that way. We feel like God is not present. But remember something. God doesn't live in your presence. You live in his. He's always present. You're in God's presence every moment of your life. And what's interesting is sometimes God's people will meet some celebrity or they'll meet some sports star or some musician and they about swoon, they about fall on themselves at the excitement of meeting this person. Oh my goodness, I can't believe it's really you. Oh, can I take a picture with you? Hey, y'all come over here and see this, this person. And it's a person. It's just a person. But we're so in awe of their talent. But then we come into the 
presence of God in the assembly of the church and sing praises like we're bored to death. And I want you to know something. He deserves better. He deserves better than that. Because God is far above anyone. And I think sometimes maybe people feel like, well, you know what? I don't really want to praise God. I don't really know that I even enjoy that. What do you think is going to happen in heaven? What are we going to do in heaven? You think we're going to go up there and play golf? We're going to fish? We're going to sit around a campfire? I'll tell you what happens when we get in the presence of God. We fall down on our face and we worship God. And I'll tell you, this is just a microcosm. It's a small piece of that today that we come together in the presence of the holy God and we praise his name. And he is worthy of our praises. He is worthy of our loud praises. He is worthy of my heart and my complete and total attention. Listen to what David said. Praise the Lord. I praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. I praise God with my whole heart. And I'll tell you, that has an effect on us. When we really just surrender our heart and our attention toward the praise of God, it changes things in our life. Number two, God is holy and God is righteous. The psalmist says his work is honorable and glorious and his righteousness endures forever. Going back to Revelations chapter 4 and 7, it says the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures each had six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God is holy. What does the word holy mean? You know, it's, it literally just means he's different from all the rest. He's different from all the rest. But it's in regard to his righteousness. God is pure. He's not like men. Now, God created us in his image, and what did God call us to be? Holy. He said, I'm holy. You be holy, because I'm holy. But it's hard to fathom what that really means, that God is holy. But I'll tell you, these angels that continually cry out day and night, holy, 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 they knew about the holiness of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is standing there and he's seeing this view of the throne of God, and this angel is crying to the other angel, holy, holy, holy. God's not just holy. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. You say, well, okay, that just sounds repetitive. No, it's like us saying he's not good. He's not better. He's the best. In fact, he's the best of the best, and he's better than the best of the best of the best. God's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He's different. He's set apart from anything that we recognize in this world. God is faithful and true. He says the work of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprighteousness. You ever think about what a blessing it is that we serve a God that is true? You ever think about that? A God that's faithful? I'm going to tell you something. I may or may not keep a promise I make. How about you? You ever told somebody you'd do something and then you just either forgot about it or didn't do it or or reprioritized it and put it on the back burner and just didn't think it was that important. I've done that. And I, you know, people are that way, aren't they? Sometimes we're not faithful. Sometimes we're not true. But you know what? God is always true. Every day of the week, every minute of every day, every second of every minute, God is faithful and God is true. Hebrews chapter 6 says this, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. You know what he's saying? 
He's saying the reason why we can hold on to the hope of heaven, the hope of eternal life, is because God made a promise, and God can't not keep his promise. I know that that's a double negative English teachers. <laughs> he can't not keep his promise because he can't lie. I don't know whether somebody that promises me something will keep their promise or not, but God keeps his promise every single day, and so he's worthy of my praise. You know why? Because I know that heaven is there, and I know eternal life is for the faithful. And if that is not a strong encouragement and emboldenment for us, I don't know what it is. Because God is true. And he keeps his promises. 2 Corinthians 1, 18-20 But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, or so let it be. Or so be it, to the glory of God through us. If God said it, God meant it, God will keep it. And why would we not praise him for that faithfulness, for that truth that he has? God also provides and he is able. He's given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. You know, we doubt that sometimes, that God provides, that God provides. Sometimes I just have trouble with trusting or accepting God's will. Maybe you do too. But I know this, God promised to provide, and God said, I am able. What does that mean, God is able? Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 28, we've looked at these verses. They're very familiar verses. Isaiah says, have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. You ever get tired and weary? You ever just really feel like you not, don't have enough strength to just continue and you just quit? Well, guess what? God doesn't. He doesn't get tired. He's not weary. He's able. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day, God is able. He doesn't get tired. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. You know, that's very true. We see these kids running around 90 miles an hour and it just seems like they'll never stop. But eventually what happens? They just fall over. <laughs> Go into a short coma and then they're up again. But you know what? They get weary. They get faint. They get tired. But God doesn't. And he says this, and neither do those who wait on the Lord. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Does it just mean, well, I'm waiting. I'm waiting, God. No. It means to put our trust and our confidence in him, to rely on him. Those that rely on God... They'll renew their strength. Why? Because God gives power to the weak and he increases strength. And when we put our trust in him, we renew our strength. We mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What's he saying? Is he saying that we're never going to get tired? That's not his point. His point is we will endure. We will make it through. We will persevere but you're not going to persevere doing it your own way, through your own strategies, trusting in your own might and power. It's about God. And I'll tell you how we express our trust in God. Just like Jehoshaphat and those people who appointed those singers to sing praises to his name. And we should do that every single day. We should praise God. If we do that, God will bless us. And finally, God sent redemption. Psalms 111, and this time verse 9, He has sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. God sent redemption. He sent a Redeemer to buy us, to purchase us, to give us eternal life. 
And I'll tell you, if you don't have anything else in life, if you're living life right now and you're confused and you're depressed and you're in pain or you're sick, but you've got Jesus Christ, you've got something to praise God about. You've got something to praise God about because he sent redemption. You remember, I'm certain, that when God sent in Moses to bring his people out of Egyptian bondage, that those people, they were very confused about what was going on. You know, they didn't know who Jehovah God was. They didn't know who he was. Moses even said, who do I tell them sent me? I mean, what's your name? You know what God said? I am that I am, which means I exist. That's who you tell them. I'm existence. You know, and that's, that's inferring his being the creator and that all things flow and come from him. But he goes in and he performs mighty deeds in the face of the people. And they watch those mighty deeds. And then they finally leave. Pharaoh says, all right, get out, go. Take everybody, take all your stuff, take all your kids, just get out. And they leave, and they get right down to the base of the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, they look, and here comes Pharaoh and all of his chariots. And they are boxed in. You know what they did? That's it. We're doomed. They even cried against Moses and God. What, did you just bring us out here to die? A lot of good that does. You know, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. This is why we're here, just to be slaughtered. And what did Moses say? Stand still and see the salvation of God. And he raises his hand and he raises his staff and the waters part. And they pass through on dry ground. But that wasn't all that happened. When they got to the other side, Pharaoh and all of his chariots had went out in the middle of that water. And they turned around and looked. And God collapsed the waters on top of Pharaoh and all of his people. And you know what happened that day? Finally, slavery was over. Finally over. And I want you to know, that's not about Moses and Israel. That's about you. Because that's what Jesus Christ has done as our deliverer. He has opened up the waters of baptism for us. And when we pass through those waters, you know what happens? That which keeps us enslaved, sin, it dies in those waters. And we come out on the other side. But you know what they did when God collapsed those waters? Go read Exodus 15 when you get home. And read the song of praise that they sung to their God for the redemption and for the salvation that he gave them that day. And then think about yourself. I hope we've all thought about our lives this morning and about the praise that we've offered to our God because God says in that day, and this is the day of the Messiah, the day of the coming of the Redeemer, in that day you will say, O oh Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away. And you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, that's hallelujah, Yah, the Lord is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day you will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deed among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. We're right here today in Zion. In the kingdom of God, in the middle of the assembly of the church of the firstborn, we are here and God is worthy of our crying, of our loud praises. And I hope we're not bored by the God of heaven. Friends, today, if you have never passed through the waters and received the redemption that God offers you, we want to encourage you to do that. And if you're a child of God today and maybe your life has been one not filled with gratitude, but maybe full of resentment and bitterness and you just need prayers for strength, for comfort or whatever. Well, I'll tell you, that's a good way to put your trust in the hands of God to wait on the Lord is to go to him in prayer. And we want to help you do that this morning. If there be one of either case, please come and have a seat on the front row as we stand together and sing. Grace.